Anyway, good morning, church family. There I am. Well, for those that don't know me, uh, I'm John Klobuchar. Uh, my wife and I have been members here at Clayton Valley Church since 2014. Uh, uh, I'm retired from the Coast Guard and uh, post-Coast Guard went to seminary. And Lord, will, uh, Lord um, led me to, uh, uh, into the ministry, a ministry that he called me into. I certainly would never guess this. And if you don't know, I work... Uh, full-time at the Cross County Jails as a, as a chaplain, and um, it's just my honor to be up here to hopefully do some justice to God's amazing word that he's revealed to us. As Chris mentioned, we're in the book of Ezra, and today specifically we're going to be looking at chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 22. Um, we're looking at the completion of the temple, uh, its dedication, and the celebration of that. And what I want to focus on day, today is how responding to God's faithfulness, what, what that ought to look like, what it looks like here, what it ought to look like for us. So if you have not already turned there, I've got to get used to the clicker. Ezra chapter 6, we're going to look at 13 through 22. I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. If we can please uh, stand up in honor of God's word. And please follow along as I read. Then Tatnai, governor of the region, west of the Euphrates River, Shathar Bazene and his, their colleagues diligently carried out what King Darius had decreed. So the Jewish elders continued successfully with the building under the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, son of Edo. They finished the building according to the command of God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and King Artaxerxes of Persia. The house was completed on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. When the Israelites, including the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of God's house, they offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, and 400 lambs, as well as 12 male goats, as a sin offering for all Israel, one for each Israelite tribe. They also appointed the priests by their divisions and the Levites by their groups to the service of God in Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th day of the month. All the priests and Levites were ceremonial clean, ceremonial clean because they had purified themselves. They killed the Passover lamb for themselves, their priestly brothers, and all the exiles. The Israelites who had returned from exile ate it together with all who separated themselves for the uncleanliness of the Gentiles of the land in order to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. They observed the festival of unleavened bread for 70 days with joy because the Lord had made them joyful, having changed the Assyrian king's attitude towards them so that he supported them in the work of the house of God of Israel. Please pray with me. God, as we consider what is revealed to us here, what you have done here, your faithfulness, God, in what you bring about, God, may we understand that better in a way, God, that we are even more amazed today by your goodness, by your grace, by your mercy, by the fact that more than us, you care, you desire uh, to see us come to salvation. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated.
So the first thing I want to, uh, or the theme of today is responding rightly to God's faithfulness. Um, and the first one, I'm going to apologize, it's going to be really redundant. Responding rightly to God's faithfulness begins with God's faithfulness. Uh, this is, I, I actually agonize over this, believe it or not. What should my first point be? How is this going to lead us into rightly responding? Because the rest of this is, is really demonstrating to us how we ought to respond to God's faithfulness in this case. And it gives us a great example of that, of God being faithful and our right response to that. And here I was like, what am I going to do with 13 through 15 to make it fit into a nice outline? Well, it begins, and I said, duh, it begins with God's faithfulness. We don't respond to God's faithfulness until we are aware that he is indeed faithful. And if there's one redundancy in the entire universe, if there's one thing that is constant, it's God himself. It's that he, what he says will happen, will happen. To his will, to his promises. That, that simple thesis is, is something, if nothing else, we take away again. The promises God has said will happen happen and we respond from that in verse 15 we see that through the details that the temple is brought to completion intentionally in the sixth year of the reign of the king of king darius and this brings our account to 515 bc no not surprisingly what 70 years since the destruction of the first temple and the exile this is exactly what god intended and so far in this narrative Verses 1 through 6. This is the new high point of the narrative, and rightly so. We've seen where God has raised up Cyrus in chapter 1 to give favor to Israel that they might return to Jerusalem and for the work to start. This was 539 B.C. In chapter 4, when we get there, we see what opposition. Chris talked about this last week. Uh, this, this led to complacency and caused the work to stop. And yet God was what? He raises up the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And through the prophetic work, the work begins again. We see this in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. But again, work is challenged. Evidence of demand for the work is needed, and the work stops again. But then what happens? God raises up Darius, Darius' favor. And the decree, the decree originally from Cyrus is read aloud, and it is doubled, it is doubled down on by Darius that this work will Continue. In fact, any inter- interference uh, in this work, this pagan king will punish those who stop this work. And all those, this cumulative efforts, everything that happened with God ultimately behind the seeds results in what? The finished work. The temple being completed when God intended it to be. And the work is celebrated and dedicated. And there was an acknowledgement that God, God not only, it says here in my notes, assisted them in the work. No, he was there orchestrating everything for this narrative this precisely answers the question and it's a question we 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 can often ask ourselves depending on what's going on in our lives what what is it about god's sovereignty amidst so much opposition or, or or things not working out as i plan well this answers that question just as he intended his will comes about he is faithful to what he has promised we see this in the roots of israel itself um, best example, probably my favorite example, is from Joseph to the Exodus. Joseph is what? He's favored by the father, the favored son, right? But he falls out of favor because of this, because of his brothers. He's sold. He's sold into exile. Joseph finds favor with Potiphar. 
Joseph loses favor over what? False accusations. Goes to prison. Goes to jail. Maybe I should go see him in prison. I just thought of that. I'm glad you laughed. (laughs) Joseph loses favor over false allegations, goes to prison, but then he finds favor in the eyes of the king of all people, right? And saves the very family that rejected him. And then Israel has favor in Egypt, and their population surges. God blesses them all to do what? Lose favor in the eyes of Egypt. But for what end? That God might be faithful to rescue them, to bring them out in, in through the first exodus. And this is the pattern, the redundant pattern, the consistent pattern that God has. God shows he is faithful to what he said he will bring about. This should be a familiar verse for all of us. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 12. At least verse 11 it should be. But this gives us some context. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. I, um, this off the top of my head again, but that's okay. So my wife has this verse, and we've gone back and forth about it a little bit. She's probably up there staring at me right now. I'm not going to look up at her. And I said, darling, don't you know you're taking this out of context, why we have this in our house? And, uh, and, may, and many of you, I'm not, I'm not going to talk you out of taking it down because we still have it up. Um, but he, here's the point is, is that there is a context here. There's a context for how God will be faithful. But this verse is absolutely consistent with how he's faithful throughout redemptive history. And I won't give away too much yet because, and you could probably guess where this is headed, but this is how he is indeed faithful to us. He knows what he plans. He executes what he plans. He is faithful. So Israel's exile and now their return from exile is what this context is talking about. Every twist and turn, as Pastor Chris demonstrated last week, even opposition, God is unmistakably providential and is well in charge of what he's bringing about. His redemption is in his hands. We don't have to fret. That song we just read, I, sh- I, I don't know how Romans 8 made it to the cutting floor out of my sermon, but that verse taken right out of the end of Romans 8, that, that nothing can be for those who God is, or no one can be against those who God is for. Nothing can take away his lo- the love that he directs towards those that are his. So, but to rightly respond, we need to believe this very thing. We need to remind ourselves of it, that our right response is that it begins with God's faithfulness. Our belief in that, our trust in that, a faithfulness that is not despite, not despite opposition. God is never surprised by things not going how we think they ought to, let alone is he thwarted by that. He, he's not unraveled by the things that go on around it, by, by any kind of opposition, even suffering, even tragedy. But he has us in mind. He has those, he, um, those he, he is giving salvation to in mind through it all. So when we believe this, that responding rightly to God's faithfulness, that it first begins with God's faithfulness, it then leads to joyful sacrifice. Now, this is a very intentional brief, what I just read, with relative to everything that's gone on so far in 
uh, in Ezra it is largely about this outworking of God's faithfulness through all these circumstances. These are circumstances that sometimes don't make sense. Wait, you gave us favor with Cyrus. Why is this favor now in question? You know, when we read First Kings, and the other thing that we see here is that this really pales in comparison. And in chapter 3, Eric looked at this too, right? There's, there's this disappointment. This isn't quite what we remember about the first temple. And when we read in First Kings chapter 3, yeah, this kind of pales in comparison, at least in this context, to celebration, because it says there that Solomon offered for sacrifices of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. And so the kings and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. But for this remnant, the scale was not, a, not an issue because they recognized and were overcome with joy at the recognition of God's faithfulness. And more specifically, as the temple itself represents. And what does it represent? It represents God's, Yahweh's intention to be present with his people. To be present with them means to be for them. There's no clear way of seeing that. When God is present, when he guarantees his presence, he can only be for you. And maybe put it in another way, his desire to be present, it's, it's, it's the clearest indication that we have a God we can trust because he is faithful. And therefore, there's no greater cause for joy and the necessary sacrifice that follows. The preparations of the priest to maintain God's presence, the sin offering itself, signifying that all Israel might be atoned for and experience God's faithful presence. Rightly responding to God's faithfulness, it is joyful sacrifice. We respond from it. Not, we don't respond to it to gain it. We respond from what he has done. Now, spoiler alert, if you've read Ezra and Nehemiah, which many of you have, it just doesn't abide, though. It doesn't stick without a permanent joyful sacrifice. We need a permanent joyful sacrifice on our behalf. And in God's greatest act of faithfulness, today we have a once-for-all joyful sacrifice. In Hebrews 12, we read, Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy of our rescue. That was the joy that he saw. The joy of guaranteeing salvation for those that might put their faith in him was joy to God. Joy to God that led him to what? To a humiliating death on a cross on our behalf. He is the one who is faithful to our cause. He is far more committed to our salvation than we will ever be. He is literally all in on this And how do we know this? His joyful sacrifice. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Our rightful response of a joyful sacrifice is always in light of his joyful sacrifice. And here the order matters. <laughs> to be sure, you know, grace is free, absolutely, 
yet it's not cheap. Paul, will, Paul says this clearly in Romans 6 that do we go on sinning that grace may abound by no means? Yet, it is always, 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 again, redundancy, <laughs> always, always, always in view of his mercies, always as a response to his sanctifying, justifying, joyful sacrifice for us. Jesus came down. We do not make our way up, but respond because he has placed us with him in the heavenly temple. The permanent place we reside with him and he with us. We respond out of that reality, out of that permanency. He's done it all. Lastly, responding rightly to God's faithfulness begins with knowledge, knowing God's faithfulness. It leads to joyful sacrifice but it continues in remembering together. You know, since chapter 4, verse 8, this narrative has been in Aramaic. And, and to complete this last part, this, this, this part, there's many reasons why, potentially why, and, and, and there are other reasons why, but it seems like one good reason is, is you remember there is a time and a place for us to commit, to get together like we are today and remember just what we're talking about today. For Israel now, um, this was part of their calendar. Celebrating Passover, remembering the first exodus from Egypt was meant to remind them of God's faithfulness in the exodus. And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread would be a, it's a tangible reminder to throw out the old leaven in order to pre- pre- uh, prepare themselves for a new harvest. The old leaven of sinfulness that needs to go away needs to be purged in order to walk in newness of life. One of the best people I ever served with um, in the Coast Guard, Lieutenant Jessica Hill, um, shared an office with her right here in Alameda. Uh, we were part of a pollution response branch. We, that, that's what we did out of that office. She was straight out of officer candidate school. Um, I was a chief at the time, and so I, junior officers, part of a chief's job is to mentor junior officers, but she, was, she didn't need a whole lot of mentoring. She was just an all-star. Well, she, um, she applied for dive school, and rightfully so, she got it. I mean, she worked her tail off, worked her tail off, and all the prep, preparation, what we saw was her at the gym, like morning, noon, and night, prepping for this very hard school. She actually became the first female um, dive, officer in, uh, dive officer in Coast Guard history. So her first assignment was on the icebreaker Healy. Most of our, uh, our divers are either ashore and they deploy out, or we have a few divers that are... I keep saying we like I'm still in the Coast Guard. In mean, 30 years, I'll do that to you. Or they, they're out on the icebreakers. Um, just catch myself for a second. So I, I, this might have been a year into her tour on the Healy, is that uh, we, we found out she had died died in a diving accident. Died in a diving accident with another petty officer. So after about a year later, an investigation comes out. This is what happens when, uh, you know, in the military, a lot of, you know, bigger parts of industry, um, uh, police, fire, all, all, uh, any, any, uh, any jobs that have a, a whole bunch of risk, you're, you're going to, if something like this happens, you're going to investigate it. But a year later, that investigation comes out, and it was fully transparent. At that time, the Coast Guard wanted to be very transparent about what they did, and transparency in their mind was going to bring about the right kind of change. 
Well, in that investigation, Lieutenant Hill, she was assigned a lot of the blame. She was assigned a lot of the blame, and I remember, I still remember the day that we, we got the report. Um, I can't remember if it was an email, but either way, I read the report, and my boss, really good friend of mine, Christian brother, was in the room. He was just, he was floored. He was mad. He thought he got, she got thrown under the bus, dragged through the mud, and everything else. But I saw it different. I think Lieutenant Hill would have saw it different. Please learn from my mistake, right? Please learn, because she did make a mistake. The whole Coast Guard uh, dive program had to go into a major reset. It had to be looked from top down. They had to see, what, what did we do wrong? How do we avoid this? There were so many steps that led to this accident. And she, she bore some of the blame. And this is something, if you work in any of those environments, you know that transparency is important. Remembering is important. Train, when you go to training for um, uh, uh, any kind of training, when you work in a high-risk environment, they, they, they're going to look at uh, incidents in the past. How can we avoid that? What were the steps that led to this accident? How can we avoid them in the future? But back to what we're considering today, how much more is important for us to remember that except for God, we would be dead in our sins and trespasses. We have to be reminded of this. We have to be reminded that we are entirely transparent before God. It's something we can't avoid. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read this. For the word of God is living and affective it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who, who must, must give account. What's amazing about this passage, though, is it says we lay here exposed before God. Um... We were just in Hebrews 10 this morning, a, a little bit after this, and it says it's a fearful thing to be before, before God, naked and exposed. And yet the next verse says what? Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has what entered to the place of our, um, where he intercedes for us, approach him with confidence, where we find mercy at the throne of grace. In our time of need, we can turn to him. And it's back to the point. We need this reminder. We need this reminder of why we need salvation. But we also need the reminder that he has done it. He has completed it. We can turn to him. Often I, I, uh, when I'm talking to inmates and, and, inmates and such, uh, you get the sense, and, and perhaps we all do this sometimes, I can't turn to God right now because what, what I'm experiencing, what I'm thinking, what I've done, I can't go before him right now. But it's, it's the very instance you have to go to. It's the very instance that he's crying out, come to me. I'm there to intercede for you. I'm there to help you in your time of need. And part of our gathering then is this. It's this remembering. It's, the, it's to remember that the very miry pit of our sins, that our sins have put us in, God, God entered into that to deliver us from. We need to be, risk being redundant, to take this back to the beginning, about remembering because, as this passage makes clear, we do not remind ourselves of our, our hope is 99%, but it is 100% a result of God's faithfulness. It's back to that same thing. We have to re- respond out of understanding and knowing his faithfulness. And faithfulness to what? To our need of rescue. 
our need for help. I've been, uh, so it's been about a year and a half since I've been working at the jail. And there's two distinctive things that they're both true. And, 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 and this is certainly what we've seen in the book of Isaiah as well. And they don't conflict any other. Once, there's an enemy. An enemy that is influential. And opposes the gospel at seemingly every turn. It seems insurmountable. It seems that, why do you have me in this place, God? There is, it, there's no hope. But every day, God reminds me, and more importantly, that he is neither surprised nor thwarted by the plans of the enemy, even in the darkest of places. He will rescue us. He will rescue you and I from whatever pit it is we've uh, dug ourselves into. He is faithful to rescue from the lowest pit, we can imagine, because of the faithfulness of his, once again, joyful sacrifice. Where he despised the shame of the witness and evil of the cross so that we might enter into the permanent temple. That the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9 that he entered once for all by his own blood. He's there. It's secure. That illustration in there that I love because I love nautical terms. (laughs) He is the anchor for our soul. Unmovable. Because of who he is and where he is. At the same time, his promises that always come to pass. He has entered the permanent temple in order to make what? Us his temple. Where he resides. This is where the prophet Jeremiah says, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Is this the hope that you have? Do you trust in his faithfulness? And specifically, his faithfulness to make that he's made this hope permanent. That he's the only source of this hope. And whether or not this is your first time, or for all of us, it's always the occasion to repent, to turn. Trust in what he's done. Because for all of us, the right response to God's faithfulness is that it begins and it ends with his faithfulness. His joyful sacrifice becomes the very means by which we can have a joyful sacrifice offering ourselves in service to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are faithful. You've left nothing undone. We can trust in that. Your promises, which you say will come to pass, always come to pass. Whether that's someone's first time here today or our one of our millionth times, may we turn to you again and again to know that, to trust you, to celebrate you, to offer ourselves, God, out of what? The fact that you offered yourself for us that we might have a permanent hope for your sacred prayer. Amen. Thank you, John.